Welcome to another episode of the Amford Church Sermon Podcast. We're thrilled that you're taking the time to listen to what we have to say about God, the world, and you. These sermons are recorded live during our weekly Sunday morning services. To find out more about us or to plan a visit to join us, check out our website, amfordchurch.com. Again, thanks for listening and enjoy. Mark chapter 2, verse 18. Now John's disciples, that's John the Baptist, and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? They can't, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And on that day, they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new, piece of, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the cornfields. And as his disciples walked along they began to pick some ears of corn. The Pharisee said to them, Look, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Another time he went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with a shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. And Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. I wonder if you've ever had opposition for something. I wonder if you've ever changed something in the house, like I don't know, perhaps uh, children have gone away to university or got their first job and and first house, and then when they came back, you changed their room around. You painted it, you stripped the walls, moved their furniture around, and and they oppose you. They say, Mom and Dad, why would you you do that? That was my room. That's how I liked it, the old ways. Why have you changed it and and made it all new? Or maybe you changed a recipe. Um, All of us, I think, remember our mum's food. Hopefully your mum was as good a cook as mine was. But when they change recipes, when they try and do something a bit new, a little bit different, it's kind of hard, isn't it? Frustrating when things don't turn out as they used to be, when things change. Well, Jesus is changing things in this passage. He's really um, interrupting life as they knew it. For the Pharisees, for the teachers at the time, for pretty much the whole Jewish nation. Jesus is changing things. Um, Jesus is disrupting life as they know it. So we're going to ask two questions as we go through and look at these stories and see how he's doing that. The questions are, who does Jesus think he is? 
Who is this man who thinks he can come and, and tear up the rule book? And then what are we going to do about that? Really, those are the two questions that, that go through the whole of Mark's gospel. Who on earth is this Jesus? He lived in history. That's undeniable. He was no mere myth. There really was a man, Jesus, who came from Nazareth, who reportedly did these wonderful things. And the question that we have when we read Mark's gospel is, who on earth is it? So that's the question we're going to ask as we look at each of the stories. Who is this who tears up the rule book? And how on earth do we respond to that? So we'll see some examples of good and bad responses as we go through. So let's have a look at the first, at the first one. You'll remember maybe from last week when we began chapter 2 um, that everything's pretty much been going quite smoothly for Jesus so far. People are pretty positive about him. Um, Jesus has been mostly healing um, people who are sick, people who are suffering. Really, the only people who have opposed him, who don't like what he's doing, are the demons, are these evil spirits who flee and run away from him. So even that's a pretty good thing. People are generally quite curious about him. But then last week, we began to see how he started to get up the nose of a few people. These Pharisees, they were teachers, people who took the Old Testament, God's um, God's revelation, God's teaching about himself and about how they should live as his people, they took it and they added loads of extra things to it. And they put lots of burdens, telling people to do this, do that. This is how you please God. That's how you displease God. Just they added to all of God's rules, his good rules, plenty of other rules, as if they built a new hedge around the Bible, just so you never step foot on it. The Pharisees were really good people. At least they would look like it on the surface. Really um, honest, really um, I don't know, leader kind of people, people who, that you, who you would look up to. But last week, we began to see that Jesus was getting up their nose a little bit. Jesus forgave somebody's sins. It's the first time that we saw that. Not just healing, but forgiving sins. And so the Pharisees begin to say, who on earth does he think he is? He's blaspheming. He's doing something or saying that he's doing something only God can do. And then he goes and spends type, time with Types of people that you would never expect God to be interested in. Tax collectors who are ripping people off. Kind of the equivalent of payday loan sharks. That's what tax collectors were like. People that everybody loved to hate. And Jesus is spending time with them and partying with them. And so who on earth does he think he is? He was supposed to be a holy man. I thought he was supposed to be representing God, so he claims. And he spends time with them. And so you begin to see they're at the kind of raising the eyebrow stage. When you walk into that room and mum and dad have changed it completely, you think, what on earth is going on here? You raise the eyebrows and, and, um, and begin to wonder what, they, what their plan is. But before we know it, as you go through these few stories, maybe you'll have noticed, they're not just following him around, observing what Jesus is doing, but they're actually actively on the lookout for a way to shut him down. They're not just raising the eyebrows, but we'll see, they've got a raised clipboard with all their rules and a tick list of what they want Jesus to live up to. And then beyond that, they raise their fists and they begin to think about how they're going to kill Jesus. So opposition is a thing that we've just begun. It's only chapter three and already people are standing against Jesus. I wonder if you've noticed though, how though they try and hide all of that, though it's mostly just thoughts in their own hearts or kind of muttered words, I wonder if you've noticed in the story so far how even though they try and conceal what's going on, Jesus knows exactly what's happening in their hearts. Jesus knows exactly what people are thinking. Jesus sees all hearts. If you like, he's a, the best cardiologist the world has ever seen. No need of, of an ECG 
or the, you know, the new Apple Watch that takes it as you're walking around. No need of, a, of an MRI, nothing like that. He just sees into your heart and he knows. Not in a kind of cardiologist way to work out your heart rhythms and all that, but he knows what's in our hearts, what's good and evil, what the desires of our hearts are. And so he sees these Pharisees, he sees these people, sees their hearts, whether they trust him or oppose him, and they can't pretend before him. That's a little warning to us. We can't hide things before God. But come on, let's go and have a look at this story, this question about fasting. So these people come to Jesus. They might well be disciples of the Pharisees or something like that. It doesn't say. But these people come to Jesus and they say, look, we're all fasting. You know, the disciples and their followers and John the Baptist, who was a pretty special guy, and his followers, everybody's fasting. So why don't you? All the really spiritual guys, they're doing it. So why aren't you, Jesus? You claim to be a king. You claim to be somebody who's come from God. So why aren't you matching up to what we expect? Why aren't you matching up to our view of holiness, to our view of what goodness is all about? You don't really look that godly to us, Jesus. You don't really look like a Messiah, like a king who's going to come and rescue the world. Not exactly what we expected, Jesus. Why aren't you fasting like everybody else does? Now, fasting... I imagine most of us know what that is, but fasting is when you give up food or something else to kind of get serious in prayer before God. It's a way of expressing your longing for him. You're longing to be filled, not just with food and the things that this world has, but a longing to be filled with the Lord, to be um, pleased with him, to be satisfied with him. It's something that you do to make time for prayer, to show God that you're really serious. These Pharisees did it a lot. If you look at Luke 18, um, Pharisees did this twice a week, spent two full days, I think about Mondays and Thursdays, so kind of spaced out through the week, two full days not eating, to try and speed on the kingdom of God, to try and prove to God that they were really special and holy and worth paying attention to. They were holy men who were really serious about God, and so they were fasting. But the Bible says, only says, that you have to fast once a year for the people of Israel. It doesn't give us any rules about fasting. But for the people of Israel, it was one day a year. They did it two days every week. And so they're coming along to Jesus with a clipboard of their own made-up rules. Do you see that? One day a year you had to do it on the Day of Atonement when all this special stuff happened at the temple. And they're coming along to Jesus and saying, why aren't you fasting all the time? Why aren't you being holy like us? Why aren't you meeting our expectations? And Jesus could have said, look, it only says in the Bible, only says in the law, that we have to do it one day. So don't give me hassle for that. I'm just following the scripture as it says. But he doesn't say that, if you spotted what he does. Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away. And on that day, they will fast. Jesus says, look, there's some situations where you don't fast and mourn. There's some situations where you don't intentionally starve yourself, like weddings. That's a pretty good illustration. Or Christmas Day. You don't see a bridegroom coming in or a bride coming through the doors, get dressed up in all of your wedding clothes, go to the wedding, wedding supper, and then sit down and say, oh, actually, I'm all right, thanks. I'm fasting today. Uh, I just started a bit of Weight Watchers, and I, I can't. I'm sorry about that. No, you put Weight Watchers on the back burner, and you eat cake. Don't you? you fill up your plate, you get your glad rags on. When the wedding's happening, you celebrate the wedding. Imagine coming in. Imagine coming into a church all dressed up, flower pinned to your lapel, wonderful, huge, enormous hat on, far bigger than anything you would ever wear. And then somebody else comes in in overalls. Maybe it's a, a Monday wedding 
or a Friday wedding, you know, on, in half term, and the, only the, the teachers, and so that's the only day they can get off, something like that. But it's a midday, uh, midweek wedding. And this guy comes in in overalls and a baseball cap, and he says, what are you doing? Don't you know that it's Monday? Why are you not all in work? Come on, get, come on, get some proper work clothes on. Forget all this food. And, come on, go out. And you say, no, 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 mate, we've t- taken the day off. They've taken the day off. This is a special wedding day. Of course we're not going to get our overalls on and, and go out to work. This is the day to celebrate. It's not just any old Monday. And so when Jesus is around, it's not just any old Monday or Thursday. When the bridegroom is here, this is special. When the bridegroom is here, you pay attention to him. You don't just do normal stuff. When the bridegroom is here, you celebrate, and you, you don't just go through the old religious motions. Jesus is here, and he's the bridegroom. Now, that might just be a little illustration Jesus is using. You know, he's the one who's full of fun, and so when he's around, nobody can be sad. But I don't think it's, it's just that. The bridegroom language, hearing the bridegroom about a bridegroom in the Bible is really important. Go back and read bits of Isaiah, or the whole of the story of Hosea, who was a prophet who married a really questionable woman, married her, became her husband, and brought her out of that life and rescued her. Or think of Song of Solomon, a book that we might avoid reading to our children at bedtime. It's a little bit awkward in in places. It's all about a husband and his bride. And it's supposed to make our eyes look to God, who's our husband, and his people, who are his bride, the people who he welcomes to be into, to welcome into relationship with him. See, God isn't distant. He isn't faceless. He isn't unconcerned with the world. He's a husband. That's what the Old Testament said. He, he's a husband who loves and desires you, his people. He's a husband who sings over his bride. He's a husband who, who's grieved whenever she loses interest in him. He's jealous when our eyes wander onto other things and don't pay attention to him anymore. He's a husband who protects us and who gives everything for the sake of his bride. That's who the husband stuff was all about in the Old Testament. So then a man comes along with all of this Old Testament Bible studying that they've been doing, perhaps. They would know about the husband language in the Old Testament. And then this man comes along and he says, I'm that bridegroom. You've been waiting for God to come and pick up you, you people of Israel, you his people, and make everything okay. You've been looking forward to him marrying you, fixing everything, and living happily ever after with him. Well, then Jesus turns up and says, I am the bridegroom. I'm the husband. I'm the one that you've been longing for and looking for. The groom has come, and so now that the bridegroom is here, we're not going to fast. We're going to rejoice and look forward to the day when we get to live happily ever after. There'll come a day, Jesus says, when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. And on that day they'll fast, but it's not yet. So who is this? This is the bridegroom. This is the one who all of history has been looking forward to, who all of God's people, the people who love him, have been longing and looking forward to getting married to, to being closest and deepest, the most intimate relationship with. But what's their response to that? Well, think about the disciples, first of all. What are the disciples doing in all of this? Well, they're following Jesus. They're with Jesus, close with him. They're rejoicing and they're eating in his company, presumably. Not fasting, but rejoicing with him. That's one response. Come and get close to Jesus and rejoice in his presence. Or there's another response, which, which isn't written there, but you can imagine the people who ask this question, you can see them in the next few verses. They're standing at a distance. 
waiting for Jesus to fit in with their understanding of what he should be, waiting for him to fit into our categories. Oh, you don't really look much like a Messiah, Jesus. Waiting for him to be a little bit more holy, a little bit more like what they were expecting. We're prone to do that, aren't we? That we can not trust in God, that we can push him away and go a little bit cold towards him because I was expecting him to sort things out a little bit better for me. I was expecting him to fix my family relationships and and just make those better. I was expecting him to heal me, and he hasn't, so, you know, he can't be God. I was expecting him to to be a little bit more godlike, I don't know, to, to give me a bit more evidence to believe in, to show his face to me, to speak to me more clearly. I was expecting, expecting, expecting all these, but he hasn't lived up to what I expected. And so we can go cold to him or perhaps not come to him in the first place. But look, when you get invited to a wedding, you don't just put on any old clothes. You don't wear a boiler suit and a baseball cap. You wear what the bride and groom ask you to wear. They're the one who calls the shots. They're the ones who give you the food. They're the ones who say, wear this, not that. They're the ones who invite you and and tell you the time and the place. And if Jesus is the bridegroom, then he's the one who calls the shots. If he's the bridegroom of all of history, then he's the one who gives us the food to rejoice in. He's the one who tells us what clothes we should wear to be part of it. He's the one who invites everyone and says, come and be a part of it. Come and rejoice at this wedding. So we need to be humble when we come to the Lord Jesus and realize that he is God and we are not. God is God, and you are not. That maybe sounds a little bit harsh, but it's really freeing, isn't it? That we don't come making up our own way, as the Pharisees did. We don't come on our own terms, with it all depending on me, but it depends on him. Depends on him saying, come on, come to the wedding. Leave behind all of those rags, those boiler suits and and caps, and come and rejoice. Come and eat. Come and be with me. So which will it be today? Are you going to stand on a distance, at a distance waiting for Jesus to fill in all of the blanks on your tick sheet before you come to him? Or will you just come and join in with a party? But you might be saying, Jesus isn't here today. I don't see him in front of us. So what's our response to that? Well, Jesus is with us today. The Bible says he's with us by his spirit. But at the same time that he's not fully with us as much as he one day will be. And so we're a little bit caught between two places, caught between seeing Jesus face to face, but also having him with us in our hearts. So what do we do in life? Are we supposed to be fasting and getting serious and waiting and longing for him to come? Or are we supposed to be rejoicing and enjoying his presence? Well, it's both, isn't it? If you're a Christian, you'll know that we experience both of those things. Joy and knowing his closeness, being with his people and singing his name and and loving it. But then having those times in the week where we're battered and bruised and where we feel like he's so far away, where we're longing that he would come, longing that we'll see him face to face. And one day we will. You know, there'll come a day, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you like it or not, whether you believe in it or not, there'll come a day when Jesus returns to this world in body and you'll see him with your eyes. Whether you've died already or whether you're still alive at that point, you'll be raised to a new kind of existence in a body and you'll see him with your eyes question is, will you see him as your judge who says, well, if you don't want to come into the party, then fine, stay outside. Will he be there as your judge on that day, or will he be there as your husband? Will you be there as his wedding guests, and not just guests, but the bride? The choice is yours. He's not come back yet, so there's still time to come into the party and and know his presence now. The choice is yours. But what about the next thing? 
The next story is um, the story of the Sabbath. The, the Pharisees, you can see them watching him here as well. I don't know if they had binoculars in those times, but you can see the, the disciples walking through the fields with Jesus. And they begin to pick a few grains. And the Pharisees are there, waiting around the corner perhaps, seeing them wipe some grain off their faces, um, watching them through binoculars. And it's a Sabbath day that they're doing this. The disciples really shouldn't have been doing that, according to the Pharisees. Sabbath was a special day that God gave to, God's, to his people. God gave to the world. We're right at the beginning, in that first few moments of creation. He takes six days, six periods of time to, um, to make the world. And then on the seventh day, he rests. He looks at his world and enjoys it. Rests and enjoys it. And then he says to us, as his people, he says, you do that too. You can read it in Deuteronomy 5, how God spells it out in a little bit more detail. Two things you should do on a Sabbath day, rest from your work and remember all that he's done for you. That's what he says to the people of Israel, rest from your work and remember. And so the Pharisees, great, we've got some extra rules to live by. We love old rules. Um, and so they take the rules and they define what work is and define and define and define it. So you're not allowed to do this, not allowed to do that. Picking some grain off a, off a tree, picking a, an apple uh, off, a, off a plant, picking an apple from a tree. That counts as harvesting, technically, I suppose, doesn't it? So, okay, that's outlawed as well. Ball games, those are not allowed. So what about if there's a ball of socks on the landing and I kick it towards the laundry basket? Does that count? Yes, that counts. So cross that off the list as well. Cake, eating cake. Well, I suppose it takes some work to chew. So that probably counts as well. And so, I don't know, those are ones I made up. But you can see the idea. If you're not allowed to pick a bit of grain as you're going for a, an afternoon walk and eat it, there's all sorts of rules that they add and add and add. They've completely missed the point, haven't they? Jesus says, don't you remember that story of David? You might remember it if you were here during the 1 Samuel series. Don't you remember what the Sabbath is for? It's for you to rest. Don't you remember what David did on the Sabbath when he was starving hungry? He went into the temple, took this very special bread and ate it. And he wasn't lightning bolted from the sky or, or anything like that. Because the Sabbath is made for you to enjoy God and to rest in his presence. It's made for you to be blessed, not for you to starve yourself, for you to have the most boring day of the week. The Sabbath is made as a blessing. And so Jesus takes their rules and he says, let me show you what's behind those. Let me show you what you should be doing and thinking and, and saying and believing instead. He says, let me show you the principles. This is a day that was made for you to be blessed and encouraged and enjoy God's presence. But then he takes it a step further. He says, it's not just for you to rest, it's for you to be doing good stuff as well. That's the next story. Another time he went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. And Jesus said to him, stand up in front of everyone. He's not embarrassed. He's not avoiding pain. Which is lawful to do on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? to save life or to kill, and they remain silent. He's asking them, what's God's law all about? Why did God give you rules to obey? Was it to ruin your fun and, and wreck your life? Was it to make you some kind of religious robot? No, it's not. It, it's for you to, to flourish. It's for you to be blessed. It's for you to know the Lord, to rest from all of that distracting work, to just put it aside for a bit. And remember all that he's done for you. That's what we do on Sundays, isn't it? Some of us have to work, so that's okay. Some of us have busy family lives, and it's okay. But as you can, through the week, day by day, and if you can, why not take a whole day? What an amazing thing that would be. 
to set a full day aside to rest, to leave the homework behind, to forget about the office, to switch off your phone, to not check your email, and just take a nap in his presence. But they're angry about that. They're raging about that. They're not just observing him anymore and raising a few eyebrows. They want to kill him for that. It's worth thinking about why on earth they do that. It's because he's turning their world upside down. They've come and they have their way to come and know God, their way to get into his good books. And Jesus is saying, it's useless. You've missed the whole point, your whole life of of memorizing the Bible. Well, you know it so well, much better than any of us in this room knew it, uh, know it today. They knew it much better than us, but they've missed the whole point. This was meant for your blessing. This was meant for you to come and know God for free, not to put concrete blocks around people's necks and drag them down. So what is it? What's good to do on a Sabbath day? When you're supposed to be resting and working, is it good to do good or good to do evil? And they know it's obvious, isn't it? But they keep silent. And Jesus is angry, angry with them, but also angry at at what the society has become, angry at how they've um, ruined the lives of other people, of how they've left people in suffering when they should have done good. But he's not just angry. Look at his reaction. He was deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts and says to the man, stretch out your hand, and he obeys. Who is this Jesus who thinks he can turn the world upside down, who thinks he can make his own rules, who thinks he can teach us what the meaning of the rules behind the rules were? Well, who is this? Well, he's David. He's the one who can wander into the temple and do what he likes. He's da- David was God's chosen king. So who is Jesus? He's God's new chosen king over everything. Not just that, but he's the Lord of the Sabbath. Who made the Sabbath? Reflected and thought about this for a moment, how incredible this is. God made the Sabbath. He was there and he spoke the world into being for six days. And then he decided to stop decided it was done, it was good, it was finished, and he rested and looked at it and enjoyed it and said, you do the same. Rest from your work, look at your work, look at me and enjoy me, enjoy each other. That's a pretty good rule for you, isn't it? Imagine being in a country where that was law, where you just had to take a rest. The Pharisees really have got the wrong end of the stick, haven't they, in trying to make it something that ruins people's fun. But the God who invented that This is what Jesus is saying. The God who invented that is in the room with you now. The one who invented the seven-day week is standing here among you. This is God himself who set aside the Sabbath for you and who is the Lord over it, who's the one who can define and tell you what it's for. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. And he's the Son of Man. That's the first time we'll meet this. And we'll meet it quite a few times in Mark's gospel, this little title for Jesus. It doesn't just mean that he's a son of a person, so he's a, a human. Like if you've read the Narnia Chronicles, Aslan talks about the, the children, the humans, as, as sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, as a kind of poetic way of talking about them being people. It's not just that. This is a title that comes from way, way back, when a man called Daniel, do you remember Daniel in the lion's den? Daniel, who is in Babylon, far away, sees this epic vision. You can read about it in Daniel 7 if you want to. Sees a vision of a, someone who looks like a person. He calls him a son of man with a capital S and a capital M and walks into heaven. He takes, he's taken up on, on a cloud and he walks into heaven and sits down next to God Almighty and is given authority over everything. And Jesus says, I'm that son of man. That Daniel, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, saw Everything on heaven and on earth being put under my feet. 
whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not. I am king of all. I am the son, capital S, of man, capital M. I'm here and I get to tell you what to do. These are my rules. This is my world. I invented it and I'm standing here among you. So what are you going to do about it? Do you see who Jesus is? Well, what's your response? What's their response? Let's see it and then work out which you fit into. One response is this, to stretch out your hand and be healed. That's what the man does, isn't it? He listens to Jesus' words and he says, yes, I want a piece of that. And he obeys. He stretches out his hand and Jesus does all the heavy lifting, does all the work and he's healed. So are you hurting today? Is there something in your life which just, make, just drags you down and makes you feel rotten? Bring it to the Lord Jesus. Bring it to the Lord Jesus. Hear him speak to you and obey whatever he tells you. Perhaps the Spirit is working in your heart now and saying, you need to do this. You need to do that. You need to come and be close to me. Well, obey his voice. He may not heal us of all of our um, bodily ailments and, and sicknesses. Jesus didn't heal everybody's sicknesses that we find um, in the stories of him. He may not do that, but we know that there's a day coming when he really will, when he'll put everything right again. So are you like this sick man, struggling, just in need? Well, come to Jesus, hear his words and obey him and be healed, be cleansed, be put right. Or are you like these disciples? They're a little bit confused, as we'll see in the next coming chapters. They are really, they have no idea who this Jesus is. But they're trusting him. They're walking after him. They're coming and following him. Are you going to be like the disciples eating fresh food, coming in his presence to enjoy his rest? Are you that already? Well, then keep on doing that. That's what they do, isn't it? They get what the Sabbath is about. The Sabbath is about spending time with Jesus. So come and eat food. Come and enjoy his company. Come and be part of his party as the bridegroom, as I've said already. But maybe you stand more in the Pharisees' shoes. We don't want to be in the shoes of the pantomime villains, do we? But come on, let's be honest with us, uh, with ourselves and with him. He sees our hearts anyway, so we might as well be honest. And look at what the Pharisees do. At the beginning of chapter 2, they're raising an eyebrow, not really sure. Later on in chapter 2, they've got their clipboards out, waiting for Jesus to fit into their program. At the beginning of chapter 3, they want to murder him because he's changed everything for them. He's turned their lives upside down. He said that the way that they've been living so far is a waste of time, and they need to leave all that behind and come and follow him. That they need to leave all those rules and laws and come and live under grace. That's what those weird little pictures in the middle are all about. The old thing sweeping the new thing away, or just not really fitting together. Like somebody wearing a boiler suit to a wedding, or inviting Hugh along He's a big Ospreys fan, to a Scarlet's game. I, I asked him, invited him to one earlier on, and he said, it, I thought it was some kind of sick joke. Um, you can think of all those kind of patterns, I don't know, putting meat in with a sweet cake, or, I don't know, I quite like it, you know, pancakes and, and bacon, that kind of thing, but there's all sorts of, of, of things, pairs in the world that just don't fit together, that just don't go well. And Jesus is saying, his way of living and our way of living don't fit together. They're like new wine in old wineskins. It's just, it's just going to be a mess in the end. They're just like putting an unshrunk new piece of cloth on an old cloth. And just when you put it through the wash, we'll make an even worse mess. So when you come to Jesus, you leave your old life behind. When you come to Jesus, if you're a Pharisee and you love living by rules and coming to offer God all of your goodness so that he'd love you, 
If that's you, well, you've got to leave it behind. You've got to realize that your life has been wasted so far and that you need to leave that behind and come to him on his terms. Come and be freed and enjoy food in his presence. Enjoy being at the wedding banquet. Enjoy healing and life. It feels costly, doesn't it? It feels embarrassing to say, all all my life's been a mistake. It makes them so angry and jealous that they want to murder Jesus, and they eventually do. Sorry to spoil the end of the story. It makes them so angry, and perhaps you're angry. Perhaps you think, how can I ever leave all that behind? But you must. It's the only way. Jesus comes and says he's the bridegroom. When you get married, you leave your old life behind. Jesus comes and says he's bringing something new, something fresh. He's bringing grace instead of your rules. Well, when you, you can't have both. When you leave behind your rules and your way of getting to God, you come and, and welcome Jesus' way. So, which response will be yours this morning? Um, will you come to Jesus and be one of his disciples, hear his voice and obey, and be healed? Or will you stand at a distance, make him fit in with your program, and eventually be left outside forever? Can I encourage you and just plead with you to come and know him? If you're a Christian, can I plead with you and to, to think about this passage to think about how Jesus suffers for us, about how he deals with opposition. As we think about sharing the good news with people around us, and as some people say, yes, I want a piece of that, and they want to come with you to church, they want to come and get involved and see what it's all about, well, be encouraged that um, that happens. People really do want to come and know Jesus. And as you face opposition as well, the last little lesson is a lesson in this, that as we face opposition, it's not something strange So we face opposition and struggling. It's not something that Jesus didn't face. Jesus said, a servant isn't greater than his master. If they persecuted you, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. A servant isn't greater than his master. Peter, who was really close with Mark, who wrote this gospel, says that when suffering comes, when difficulty comes, when people persecute us and look down on us because we're following Jesus and inviting them to do it as well, he says, "Don't, don't think something strange is happening to you. Realize that you're suffering in the same way that Jesus suffered. In fact, more than that, that actually Jesus is suffering as you're suffering. So when we're opposed, when we come with this message and it's hard for people to hear, we need to remember that Jesus experienced that first to the point of going to a cross and dying and forgiving the people who were doing it. Jesus is with us. You might remember when Paul, the great writer of a lot of the New Testament, when he was converted, he was on a horse, riding around, persecuting and killing and and putting Christians in jail. And Jesus appears to him and, and says to him, Paul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You see, when we suffer for being Christians, Jesus suffers. When we feel pain as his people, as his bride, he feels pain. So whatever you're going through, if you're bruised and battered, if you feel like you're doubting and struggling, if you feel like you can't go on, if you feel like there's so much pressure from the outside to just go with the flow and become like everybody else, well, remember this passage. It's hard for Christians to live, but it's really worth it. Jesus is the bridegroom who welcomes you into a whole new kind of life. Jesus is God himself who invented rest and welcomes you to come and rest in him, to leave behind all that work and struggle to leave behind all that oppression and to come and enjoy rest in his presence. Jesus is the son of man who has authority over all things. So do you believe in him? Do you trust in him? 
Are you walking after him? Well, keep on going. And if you're not, well, why not? Who else is there to follow? What better message is there to believe than that Jesus comes to us and offers us for free a place in his kingdom, a place in his world that he's putting to rights? Let's pray. Come to him. Father God, we thank you so much for this really good news. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who wasn't afraid to stand up to those who were, who were wrong, who wasn't afraid to stand up to those who were putting down and pressing down other people. We praise you, Father, that he brought something new and fresh and beautiful, this good news of grace, this good news of your love given to us for free, that we don't have to buy it with our obedience, that we don't have to persuade you to let us into your party, that we don't have to bring anything except our own um, dirty garments. Instead of, uh, in, We don't bring anything to you apart from our own failures. Father, we thank you so much that Jesus suffered for us too. We thank you that as we suffer and struggle, we can look to him and know that he feels our pain and that he's um, promised a beautiful and better kingdom where one day all things will be put right. Father, we pray for those friends among us this morning, perhaps who are hearing this for the first time and have loads of questions. We pray that you would keep them listening to the Lord Jesus and, and give them a real desire to have those questions answered. Father, we pray, pray for those who perhaps among us who've heard, heard this many, many times before. We pray, Father, that you would um, open our eyes to see the Lord Jesus, to see how precious and beautiful he is, and to give us the courage to leave our old lives behind and come and follow him. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the Son of Man, the Lord of the, of the Sabbath, the Bridegroom, and ask that you would make yourself more and more beautiful to us this week and help us to serve you with everything that we have. Amen. We hope that you found today's message useful and challenging. And we want to take a moment to offer you some next steps that you can take right now. Why not get in touch with us via email at contact at amfordchurch.com if you have any follow-up questions or things that you'd like to discuss. If you want to know more about what's going on at Amford Church, make sure to like us on Facebook. And lastly, check out our YouTube channel for video teaching in addition to our sermon podcasts. Thanks for listening.